everyone, and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, October 13th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up on this Friday the 13th, Israel responds. A staunch American ally goes to war with Hamas terrorists, and there are worries the war will expand. I'll have the latest on Israel's fight in Gaza, what we've seen so far, and what's to come with freelance journalist Dan Ravine. Also, House Republicans can't agree on a new speaker. RFK Jr. goes independent-er. And the latest inflation data, all coming up on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. And just a reminder, this is the DC News Podcast, the weekend review of everything important that happened in Washington, D.C., the straight news without opinion. I'll tell you what happened, and then you decide what to do with that information and how to feel about it. I'm not going to try to tell you one way or the other what to think or how to feel. I'm just going to give you the newsmakers, what they're saying, and what is going on so that you can be better informed and you can share that information with your friends and your family. And if you if you think this is something they would like to hear firsthand, tell your friends and family about the DC Debrief. We're on Apple podcast spotify wherever it is you get your podcasts you will find us there all right everybody let's get to the debrief for this week Washington reacts to the Gaza war. As of Thursday, at least 27 Americans had been killed following Hamas's brazen attack last weekend against Israel. 14 other Americans are missing. The details of Hamas's brutality last weekend are still coming to light, with stories of families being burned alive in homes, children shot and killed, and others beheaded and tortured. Our Jerusalem bureau chief, Chris Mitchell, on how political adversaries in Israel are now coming together in this time of crisis. Wednesday night, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a national emergency government with Benny Gantz, former IDF chief of staff and head of the National Unity Party. People of Israel, tonight we created a national emergency government. Israel's united, and tonight its leaders are united too. We've put aside every other consideration because the fate of our country is laid on the table. Netanyahu said every member of Hamas is a dead man and expressed the horror at what Hamas has done. We saw boys and girls bound who were shot in the head, men and women burned alive, young men who were raped and slaughtered, soldiers who were beheaded. After a three-day battle, IDF forces took back the village of Be'eri. Major General Itzai Viru described what happened. People with the capture and, and their hand was blocked and someone kills them. Children in the same room that someone come and kills them all. 15 girls and teenagers that put in the same room, 308 and this over. This is a massacre. It's pogrom. Israeli leaders compare Hamas to ISIS and found this ISIS flag in a kibbutz taken over by Hamas. Israel continued to strike Hamas targets inside Gaza, while Israeli troops and materiel amassed on the Gaza border for a possible ground incursion. Up north, a false alarm sent a million Israelis into bomb shelters Wednesday night, but the situation remains tense, with many weary of an attack by Hezbollah in Lebanon and a two-front war. Israel estimates Hamas kidnapped more than 160 hostages, and President Biden told a roundtable of Jewish leaders it was the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust, and he's doing a lot to rescue those Americans held hostage by Hamas. We want to make it real clear, we're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel, including 
deploying experts to advise and assist with recovery efforts. I have not given up hope of bringing these folks home. Citizens from 36 nations are missing, murdered, or hostages, including at least 25 Americans killed. CBN News interviewed Sasha Ariev. Hamas kidnapped her sister Karina out of an idea base on the border. Maybe you don't see me crying, but I'm broken and devastated inside. I'm just trying to keep it together for my family, both parents and my uh, sister, and uh, to be strong and to believe and spread the hope that uh, she and uh, all the other hostages and missing people will come soon back home. Meanwhile, the U.S. is responding to the war in Gaza as lawmakers and the White House showing overwhelming support for Israel's war effort. CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on that. The U.S. is backing up its words of support for Israel with action. The first shipment of American munitions has arrived along with several warships. And according to the Biden administration, more help is coming. The message that I bring to Israel is this. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never ever have to. We will always be there by your side. Secretary of State Antony Blinken repeating the warning issued by President Biden. The U.S. has Israel's back, so if you're thinking of taking advantage of their current crisis, don't. Blinken, who has family members that survived the Holocaust, taking time Thursday to meet with survivors of the Hamas attack. We were saved by miracle, but there are friends that we love that weren't. We're thinking of them and trying to do everything we can. I know. We want to bring them home. Thank you. So In terms of a military response, as of Wednesday, the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group is already in the region, and the Air Force has increased the number of fighter planes. Our support for Israel is rock solid. We're working urgently to get Israel what it needs to defend itself, including munitions and iron, iron dome interceptors. Both Blinken and Defense Secretary Austin reaffirming that as Israel's needs evolve, the Biden administration will work with Congress to make sure they're met. Nathan Sales, former ambassador-at-large and coordinator for counterterrorism, says the U.S. cannot afford to allow Israel to lose this war. If Israel loses, we're next. Um, uh, for Iran, Israel is the little Satan and the United States is the great Satan. And we have every interest in helping our ally in the Middle East, our great ally Israel, um, on the front lines of this conflict. Um, we are linked in our interests, we are linked in our values, and we share common enemies. We need to do what we can to help them win. There's bipartisan support in Congress for Israel's right to defend itself. The House Foreign Affairs Committee proposing a resolution with over 400 co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle, expressing unity behind Israel and condemnation of Hamas. Still, the passage of bills like this and others depend on a speedy election of a House speaker. There are a whole number of angles to this story that we will have on CBN News, angles that you might not hear anywhere else. And I would encourage everyone to be glued to CBN News 
www.thenewsnews.com, where we will be having all kinds of information coming at you there. Uh, Chris Mitchell will be bringing you the latest from Jerusalem and his team there. They're doing amazing work on the ground as they're covering this story. But we're covering this story from all angles here in Washington, D.C. Our Capitol Hill correspondent, Matt Galka, has an interview uh, with Senator Joni Ernst, who is in the region this week. You can find that on CBNNews.com and a whole host of other angles to this important story uh, that you can access at CBNNews.com. But I'll, I'll feature one more here. CBN's Gary Lane has a look on what an expanded war in Gaza could mean for you on your wallet, on your pocketbook, and the global economy as a whole. As a major player in the global economy, the United States is not immune to the economic ripples caused by geopolitical conflicts. The stock market has already experienced fluctuations as investors react to uncertainty surrounding the Israel-Hamas war. A primary concern is the global oil market. As fighting escalates, there could be supply disruptions, followed by a spike in oil prices. Brandon Pizzurro is the incoming president of Guidestone Funds, America's largest faith-based mutual fund company. He believes consumers may experience higher gasoline prices in the days ahead. When you have one of these, you know, tremendous you know, shock events, as you might call them, is people need to initially first digest that. And that first playthrough, that bleed through is initially going to be into the oil prices. And that's where people are initially going to feel that pain. And one of those first things that people think about when they say, is my cost of living going up? And pain at the pump is certainly something we're going to have to grapple with for a little bit of time here. Any direct Iranian intervention could lead to blockades and supply bottlenecks in the oil-rich Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz. Less oil availability would directly affect transportation and production, potentially leading to increased prices for goods and services. In turn, a likely jump in inflation could hamper consumer purchasing power. Wars in general are inflationary, uh, which really starts to kind of go against this disinflationary environment that the Fed and other global central banks are looking for. Um, so you see that inflation rise because the cost of production, uh, oil certainly uh, is, is an inflationary measure. This week, Wall Street investors nervously watching Middle East developments found a bright spot. Defense-related stock prices climbed after the Pentagon pledged to send advanced weapons to Israel. The bottom line? What happens in Gaza doesn't stay in Gaza. The war is a complex web that extends elsewhere. The United States, with its interconnected economy, is not immune to the repercussions. And with a ground war now almost certain, global markets are likely to remain volatile. And as you heard in Caitlin's report, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited Israel this week. On Friday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visiting Israel as well. Most intelligence analysts agree that Iran is helping Hamas. To what degree, it's not clear. But... Many of the Republican presidential candidates have been blasting the Biden administration for working with Qatar a couple of weeks ago to release $6 billion in Iranian funds in exchange for the release of about half a dozen U.S. citizens from Iran, arguing it made it easier for Iran to fund terrorist activities. John Kirby, national security spokesman, said all that money is still sitting in a Qatari account, and both countries have said they would hold off on releasing it. So the Biden administration pushing back at Republican presidential candidate claims that this $6 billion is being used by Iran, whether directly or having more money at their disposal to help fund Hamas's terrorist attack against Israel, uh, that being pushed back by the Biden White House. Israel said Thursday that a complete siege of Gaza would remain in place until Hamas freed 150 hostages taken during its incursion. Egypt has engaged in intensive talks with Israel and the United States that would allow 
the delivery of aid and fuel through its Rafah crossing point. That's that crossing point remains closed, but Israel has been staunchly against any humanitarian aid getting in or out, saying that they cannot trust that Hamas won't take advantage of that activity of the those those human that humanitarian aid those those trucks those deliveries however it comes in there that Hamas wouldn't take advantage of that the war has now claimed at least through Thursday and obviously this death toll will continue to rise the war has claimed at least 2800 lives on both sides and displaced 423000 people in Gaza Israel on Thursday imploring the United Nations to help evacuate citizens and others from out of Gaza, gave them 24 hours to do so. The UN has responded by saying that it, that's an impossible ask. Israel launching criticism at the United Nations. The, the Israel has long felt that the United Nations did not favor Israel, looked did not act in Israel's best interests most of the time, and looking at the United Nations, uh, refusing to label Hamas in the past as a terrorist organization. So um, there clearly friction between Israel and the United Nations that has been in place for decades. But um, this signals, as as we're going to discuss here in a few minutes with, with Dan Raviv, that a ground war is coming. It could already be underway by the time you hear this podcast, but uh, urging civilians to get out of northern Gaza, giving them 24 hours to do so would lead one to think that the ground war, this, the, this war will expand uh, sometime before the beginning of the weekend. We'll have much more on this again with our guest coming up in our deep dive segment. No new speaker yet. We are at the end of week two of a leaderless House of Representatives far longer than most anticipated when former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was shockingly outed from his position. On Tuesday, House Republicans did hold a vote on who would be their next speaker. Didn't really matter. Matt Galka has more on that. Steve Scalise was confident ahead of his party's nomination vote Wednesday afternoon. Scalise edged out Ohio Republican Jim Jordan with 113 votes to Jordan's 99, enough to win the nomination. There is a lot of busy work to do, a lot of important work to do on behalf of people who are struggling, not only here in America, but who are concerned all around the world. And we're going to provide that vision. We have a lot of work to do. But the issue is far from settled. Leader Scalise won, um, and it's not over. I'm still throwing my support behind Jim Jordan for speaker. I'm not going to change my vote uh, now or anytime soon on the House floor. Some Republicans wanted a rule change requiring 217 votes from the conference in order to secure the nomination. That didn't happen, meaning the divide could spill out into a floor vote. The future speaker would need 217 votes on the floor to get the gavel. We can't afford this dysfunction. The nation can't afford this. The American people can't afford it. We need a speaker in the chair. We're in dangerous times right now. We're in three major global conflicts, potentially, and we cannot afford to not have a speaker in the chair. And the first bill the speaker told me will be my resolution condemning Hamas and praising in support of Israel. Democrats have made clear they will continue to vote for minority leader Hakeem Jeffries and Republicans would need to sort out their own differences. What we spent our morning talking about was Israel and policy, friendship, alliance, strength, national security. That's what the Democratic caucus talked about this morning in classified and in unclassified versions. What the Republican conference is talking about are rule changes and who's in charge. Um, so a dramatic difference. 
It took Kevin McCarthy 15 rounds of floor votes and debate earlier this year before he won the speakership. Republicans are hoping to lock up enough votes for Scalise before it potentially spills over to another, another multi-round marathon. However, as the week went along, it became clear that even though a majority of Republicans in the conference backed Scalise over Jim Jordan, Scalise didn't have enough votes overall for Republicans to bring a speakership vote to the floor. There were about 20 to 30 Republican members who were against Scalise and were actively calling for him to drop out of the race. And so Scalise on Thursday afternoon did drop out of the speakership race, race, removing himself from consideration, opening the process up wide open. There are not enough votes for Steve Scalise and there are not enough votes for Jim Jordan, according to members of the GOP House caucus. This move deepens the House GOP leadership crisis because there is still no indication that there is any viable candidate who could secure the 217 votes needed to win the gavel. Only the, the any potential pick could only lose four Republican votes. If, if five Republicans said, no, I don't like this guy and just refused to, to vote for him without Democrats help, that person has no chance of being elected speaker. Republicans in the House are voicing disgust with the process and the caucus's inability to coalesce around a speaker with a month before the threat of another government shutdown and Congress needing to enact funding to support Israel. The House of Representatives is essentially shut down. No work can get done without a speaker. Now, there has been talk of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries potentially working with moderate Republicans to secure enough votes for a centrist Republican speaker or to try to convince five blue state Republicans to vote for him to become speaker. Those ideas seemed ludicrous before this week, and Democrats will admit that is not a possibility until all of the Republican options have dwindled away. However, you can't really rule anything out at this point, it doesn't seem, based on what we're hearing from these House Republicans. Who could who could garner the 217 votes? The holdouts argued that as Majority Leader Scalise was no better choice, that he should be focusing on his health as he battles cancer. That was one of the arguments against Scalise. Um, and then the House closed late in the night Thursday. Lawmakers were mo meeting again on Friday, but it uh, doesn't seem as though there is, um, there is anyone imminent as of this recording. Other names being floated about, Majority Whip Tom Emmer, Congressman Kevin Hearn, Republican of Oklahoma, and Acting Speaker Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Some House Republicans are exploring whether to expand the powers held by the Speaker pro tem, McHenry, the guy who's temporarily banging the, the gavel to uh, gavel in House proceedings and then gavel him back out two minutes later, as the conference looks nowhere near ready, nowhere near ready to make a final decision on the new speaker. Is there anyone who can unite Republican members of the House? Remember, it does not have to be a member of the House of Representatives. That's why you have Congressman Nels, who's still calling for Donald Trump to be named Speaker of the House. That, again, doesn't seem likely. But with each passing day, if Republicans don't want to go across the aisle and ask Democrats to help out with finding some kind of Republican speaker that will suit everyone's needs, and there certainly doesn't seem to be, I can't imagine there's going to be five Republicans who would be willing to vote for Hakeem Jeffries as Speaker of the House. I could be wrong about that, but um, that does not seem to be a possibility based on what we've heard. Then I guess if there's no one in the House of Representatives that can get to 217, you at that point 
probably have to look outside the House of Representatives, and then that opens up the field tremendously. But that is where things stand as of Friday morning in terms of selecting a new House Speaker. House Republicans right now are nowhere on this process. RFK Jr. goes more independent. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., during his run for the presidency here as a Democrat, always was kind of on his own, not embraced by the Democratic Party, of course, because President Joe Biden is their candidate. On Monday, RFK Jr. announced he would go even more independent, running officially as an independent candidate, no longer running as a Democrat. This country is ready for a history-making change. They're ready. They are ready to reclaim their freedom, their independence. And... And that's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. Now, in the wake of his announcement, the Democratic National Committee, the White House have all been silent about this, not engaging at all. And Biden campaign officials have said they won't say anything about this. However, the RNC and the Trump campaign are vocally now trying to diss RFK Jr. Now, RFK Jr. is scheduled to speak at CPAC coming up soon. He has, he has conservative support. Depending on what poll you read, he has more Republican support than Democrat support. But of course, the polling on RFK Jr. has been all over the place. And becoming an independent, most experts agree, I think all experts agree, it's unclear now which candidate this will affect more. It may affect each candidate equally negatively or positively or, or, or whatever. But what RFK Jr.'s role as an independent in this campaign will mean, he, he's not going to win the presidency. The, the question is, how many votes does he siphon off Donald Trump and or Joe Biden? And as of right now, the, the Republicans, the RNC and Trump see RFK as a bigger threat than the Biden campaign does. The RNC and the Trump campaign went on the attack on Monday, noting past anti-conservative comments made against fracking and the production of plastic. Yes, apparently that's a thing. Uh, those were talking points. And former President Donald Trump's campaign spokesperson, Stephen Chung, said, quote, voters should not be deceived by anyone who pretends to have a conservative value or who pretends to have conservative values. An RFK candidacy is nothing more than a vanity project for a liberal Kennedy to cash in on his family's name. That the reaction from the Trump campaign to RFK Jr.'s independent run for the White House. Foreign agent Senator Menendez, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Democrat Senator Robert Menendez, now being charged by federal officials with acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. This comes after indictments were handed down of bribery and other allegations of corruption against Senator Menendez, uh, charged with trying to curry favor for Egyptian officials. The superseding indictment includes four new charges and appears to mark the first time a sitting member of Congress has ever been charged with conspiracy for a public official to act as a foreign agent. And again, remember, this is the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The indictment alleges that Menendez and his wife, Nadine Menendez, along with New Jersey businessman Wael Hanna, were having the senator act as an agent of Egypt. Uh, Nadine Menendez reportedly, according to this indictment, informed her friend Hanna that she was dating Menendez, and prosecutors said the two arranged a series of meetings and dinners with Egyptian officials. In exchange for bribe payments, Menendez was meant to help lift a block on U.S. military aid to Egypt. 
Again, that's according to the indictment. It also alleges that Nadine Menendez set up an LLC to receive the bribe payments. And it quoted a message from her saying, quote, every time I'm in a middle person for a deal, I am asking to get paid. And this is my consulting company. Senator Fetterman, uh, John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, is urging for all senators to strip Menendez of not only his power, but to kick him out of the Senate, saying this is all beyond the pale. It doesn't sound as if the Senate is ready to act that strongly against Senator Menendez. But uh, right after the indictments last week, many Democratic senators came out and said that Senator Menendez should step down. We will see if the pressure grows following this new indictment against Senator Menendez. Inflation stabilizing. The numbers for September came out and it appears as though, at least for the moment, inflation is settling down a little bit here in America. It's not going away, but uh, it seems as though the, the prices that we're paying are starting to stabilize and level off. In September, the Consumer Price Index released by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said that inflation increased 3.7% year over year. That is the same as last month. That is the same as in August. That is, of course, substantially better than when we hit the 9.1% peak in June of 2022 from the COVID pandemic, the highest since November of 1981. And when you look at core CPI, again, this is the number that most economic analysts look at because it, it strips away the food and energy prices that are most volatile. That only rose 0.3% versus August levels, which was in line with forecasts. The annual core inflation rate eased from 4.1% to 4.1% from 4.3% in August, which was even better than estimates, which had it at 4.2%. Now, we're talking tenths of a percentage here, but you'll take what you can get, right? The core CPI inflation rate peaked at a 40-year high of 6.6% in September of 2022. And looking at some of the individual categories, interestingly, in September, motor vehicle maintenance and repair was, went up the highest 10.2% year over year. Um, shelter is extremely volatile right now. Rent of primary residence up 7.4% uh, year over year. Um, food away from home, eating out up 6%. Uh, hospital services, going to the hospital, going to the doctor up 4.5%. Uh, you had uh, gas has been largely stabilizing, just up 3%, so that has been good news. Electricity, new cars, apparel, all under 3%. Uh, fruits and vegetables, meats, poultry, fish, and eggs, some of the grocery store staples, all under 1% there. Some of the ish some of the areas where things are going down, uh, fuel oil down 5.1%. Used cars and trucks, the, the used car market has eased tremendously over these last few months. Uh, they're down, they were down 8%. In September, airline fare down 13.4% and natural gas down 20%. So some good numbers there uh, from inflation. It's still here. It's still affecting people. It's still it's still a hardship. It's still something that the Biden administration, that the Biden campaign uh, has to has to really try and, and continue to get their arms around. But uh, maybe it's enough to have the Federal Reserve avoid raising interest rates again the next time they meet. But um, some decent news regarding inflation. It does seem as though uh, things have stabilized, still not at the 2.2% mark that the Fed is charged with getting inflation down to. So we will see how the Federal Reserve reacts to this news at their next Fed Minutes meeting. All right, everybody, that's the debrief. And now it's time to get into our deep dive of the week. 
Well, there are obviously a lot of moving pieces with what is happening in Israel right now, the war with Hamas, the possibility of it opening up on multiple fronts, and there is a lot to talk about, U.S. response. Very few people in this world more knowledgeable on this issue than Dan Raviv. Uh, he's a freelance journalist, longtime CBS News anchor, reporter, most recently with I-24 News, uh, and uh, a prolific author as well. Uh, Spies Against Armageddon, a book you're going to want to particularly uh, pay attention to. You can get that where, wherever books are sold. It's a history on Israeli intelligence and security agencies, including the Mossad. Uh, Dan's a friend, and um, it's a pleasure to talk to you again, sir. How are you? Thanks for coming on the DC Debrief. John, I'm glad you do this podcast, and this week there's a lot of news to talk about. There, there is a whole lot of news to talk about, and obviously the world is looking at what's happening in Israel right now, what's happening in the Gaza Strip, and of course people are wondering how how bad is this going to get? It's already gotten quite bad here over the last week. Israel, as we are recording this, is preparing to send ground troops into Gaza. And for those who don't know what Gaza is like and, and how how densely populated that area of of that Middle East region is, it's ex it's exceedingly full of people. So how difficult is it going to be for them to go in and target Hamas and their leaders and their militants and differentiate between civilians? How, how difficult a job is this for the Israeli military? It's extremely hard for the Israeli military. They're good at what they do, of course, but they've been reluctant to go into Gaza. But something extraordinary happened last weekend, extraordinarily awful, terrible, unforgivable in the Israeli view. They just couldn't possibly turn the other cheek, not at this one. They had always warned that Hamas, that's the extremist Islamic uh, faction of the Palestinians that have ruled Gaza since 2007, for 16 years now, the Israelis have always warned that Hamas is never going to accept an independent Jewish state of Israel, so we just have to, well, box them in, in effect. And so there's a security fence. Part of it is a concrete wall around Gaza. Uh, the Gaza Strip, by the way, which was captured by Israel from Egypt in the 1967 Six-Day War. It's 25 miles long along the Mediterranean. It's very narrow, only about two miles, but it is 25 miles long. So it's true that the city of Gaza, which is in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, is extremely crowded. And then at the southern part is what's still called a refugee camp, the Khan Yunus camp near the Egyptian border. Okay, but in between, there actually is a lot of space. People keep ignoring that again and again this past week after Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu said he advises the people of Gaza City, especially if they live anywhere near Hamas facilities, Netanyahu said, we are going to bomb and destroy them because we're going to destroy Hamas because of what those Hamas gunmen did in Israel last weekend. Again, killing, this is incredible in a country of fewer than 10 million people, 1,300 Israelis, almost all civilians, mutilating their bodies, raping women, torturing children, beheading some babies, and the Israelis actually showed some of those horrible photos to some journalists in Israel just to prove it's true. Hamas is terrible. And then Hamas took about 150 Israelis into Gaza, into the heart of darkness, to hold them as hostages. And it turns out that some of them are United States citizens, some are European citizens, as well as Israelis. And Israel said, we're going to destroy Hamas this time. So when, when Netanyahu told the people of Gaza, if you're not involved, if you're a civilian, you got to move. Frankly, Israelis don't want to destroy Gaza homes. Israelis don't want to kill civilians. 
but they feel after what happened last weekend, it's unforgivable. So they want to knock Hamas out of power. And one of the questions I know we'll discuss is, so what's the war aim? Like, what's next? But that's the feeling in Israel right now, absolutely determined to do that. One of the questions other people are asking is, how did Israel's intelligence apparatus, which is so highly regarded, how did they not see this coming? How did they miss this, Dan? It's amazing. It's a really an intelligence failure. That is my special area uh, with Israeli journalist Yossi Melman. I've written four books about the Mossad, Israeli intelligence, the best at what they do, but there's still the human factor. If no one is watching the surveillance screens, if no one is taking seriously what they hear in the intercepted conversations, then no one's connecting the dots. Yeah, that could remind you of what happened in this country on 9-11. Uh, not only is it also a massive number of civilians killed, as America suffered on 9-11, but also, well, the failure to see it coming, even though there were some clues. Now, we don't know in full what the clues were. I, I take it for granted that Israel, that absolutely does monitor almost everything going on in Gaza, heard some conversations, saw some movements, but apparently didn't take it seriously. Uh, only on Thursday did the Israeli army, the Israel Defense Forces, IDF, admit uh, that the prior day on Friday, October 6th, they, they did see a lot of Hamas people doing some unusual things near the fence, but they didn't think it was that serious. So they didn't add any military patrols. They didn't add even more surveillance. So that's the intelligence failure. Israel only failed that way one time in the past, but it was big. It was exactly 50 years ago. The anniversary, it was October 6, 1973. The anniversary was just last week. The Yom Kippur War on Judaism's holiest day. That's when Egypt and Syria took Israel by surprise. They even coordinated it. And there, too, an official commission found, kind of a 9-11 commission. Mm -hmm. Israel had one of those and looked into it and found a host of intelligence failures where Israel thought the Arab countries would never... Do that. They thought, no, there's no way Egypt and Syria could ever do that. So they didn't take the signs seriously. And Israel was pushed back terribly in the first weeks of the Yom Kippur War, but then came back and won that war and got close to the capitals of both Egypt and Syria. But still, it really hurt. Huge number of casualties. That's where Israel is at now. In the mm -hmm. first blow, when Hamas got through uh, what should have been a highly protected border, and committed all those atrocities on Israeli territory. That's a humiliation. It's terrible. Israel is in mourning, but determined to hit back. And it looks like they're about to send ground troops into Gaza, into the Gaza Strip, as we, as I was mentioning a minute ago. But it also looks like that this could turn into a multi-front war, that they, they could have to also deal with Hezbollah fighters uh, from Lebanon and Syria. What are you hearing about the possibility of that as well? Well, by the time folks hear this podcast, maybe Israel will have rolled in with a ground invasion. Um, the other fronts that we're thinking about uh, are Jerusalem and the West Bank. That was land captured from Jordan in 1967. You know, I have to underline for people who you know, aren't aware of all the history, there was never an Arab state of Palestine. Even in 1948, when Israel was born, which meant that the British left, the plan approved by the UN was for a Jewish state that the Jews wanted to call Israel and an Arab state that I'm sure they would have called Palestine. But a war broke out when the Arab countries invaded the tiny new state of Israel, and that war lasted almost a year, 1948 to 49. And there were refugees on both sides, but especially Palestinians became refugees. 
Certainly the Arab side lost that war. Israel became a little bit bigger in 48, but there was never an Arab state of Palestine. No one ever accepted it. So Jordan took the West Bank in the 48 war and 49, and the Egyptians took the Gaza Strip. There was never a Palestine. Well, now Israel is trying at various times to negotiate that there will be a state of Palestine, a two-state solution, Arabs in one state, Jews mostly in another state, but as you know, it keeps it keeps failing. So that's one front that could erupt again, where troublemakers in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, the part that the Israelis captured in 1967, could start trouble. It happens from time to time. So that's a matter for the Israeli police and the army and the intelligence to keep an eye out for. Generally, that's manageable. It can be ugly, especially trouble on the, on the Temple Mount, where the gold and silver-domed mosques right over the Western Wall, part of the ancient Jewish temple. Not far, of course, from where Jesus had his dramatic final days as a person on this earth, mm-hmm. you know, all within a mile or so. So yeah, it's always sensitive. The other front we think about is Northern Israel and the border with Lebanon. And it's also a border with Syria, by the way. And in Lebanon, you have the Hezbollah. Hezbollah is clearly a proxy of Iran, taking orders from Iran, money from Iran, arms from Iran. And so that Shiite Muslims in Southern Lebanon, they are also determined not to accept Israel or live alongside Israel. And sometimes a war breaks out up there So what if Iran tells their Hezbollah buddies to start a war up there and bother the Israelis and launch, who knows, again, thousands of rockets and then the Israeli Iron Dome system and the Patriot system that's been given by the U.S., Iron Dome invented by Israel, an amazing system, would be extremely busy there, extremely busy in the South as it was this past weekend and still now. Those launches from Gaza continue. There's a danger the Iron Dome system is going to be overwhelmed by all those launches. So here's part of what's going on. The United States, the Biden administration, couldn't be friendlier to Israel after what happened last weekend. Just could not be more supportive. I mean, there may be listeners and viewers of this podcast who think, ah, Donald Trump is better for Israel, Joe Biden, he's whatever. You could argue about things, but since last weekend, unbelievable. Joe Mm -hmm. Biden's pro-Israel speeches, sending Secretary of State Tony Blinken on a largely emotional visit with victims in Israel, but also moving ships. The USS Gerald Ford is an aircraft carrier and its battle group much closer to the coastline of Lebanon, Israel, and Gaza. What's the U.S. message? A, they're there to evacuate any Americans or hostages who might be free. That's good. But also the message is to Iran and Hezbollah, don't start trouble in the north. John, I see it as conceivable that American battleships actually would shell Hezbollah positions in southern Lebanon. If Iran and Hezbollah try to get involved in this war, I think the U.S. would see it as a U.S. national interest to do so. Yeah, it's uh, for everything you've heard from the president and from Blinken has been unwavering support. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has praised the Biden administration uh, for their handling and their messaging so far. Uh, we've seen John Kirby very emotional on on television and at the news conferences with some of the pictures and, and scenes that have that have come out for sure. And, and I guess cover on yeah. this podcast all the time, which is what does Congress do? What does yeah. Congress think? Almost unanimous, a very mm-hmm. support for Israel. Very few members yeah. of the Democrat party who never liked Israel, who think Israel causes trouble and human rights violations. They're not saying much. The vast majority 
supportive. And with a Speaker of the House installed, you know, one hopes that Congress can get itself together. And if, if they want to approve more aid for Israel, for instance, um, that that'll happen. I mean, you don't want to see the American Congress paralyzed. Yeah. And of course, we're waiting for a Speaker of the House to be voted on by House Republicans. Until then, the Congress is largely paralyzed with what they can do. So obviously, that's a part of this story uh, that we're also covering. But I want to get back to Hamas and, and the motivation for Hamas, because Hamas launches this attack. They know Israel will respond. They know Israel will respond forcefully. What's the goal? What's the end game for Hamas here? What What is... Obviously, they want to cause death and they want to cause destruction and they want to hit out at the Zionist threat as they see it. But what's the end game for them in all of this? Well, first, it is part of their mission and their interpretation of what Islam calls for, that if they have a chance to kill Jewish people, whether it's grandmothers or whether it's babies, they'll do it. We, we saw that this past Saturday. Mm -hmm. It was astounding when confronted with with children and families in their apartments or in or in or in shelters, they would just spray bullets and kill them all or set fire to the house. So that is in their ideology to kill Jews. Now, the political side of that is these Jews, as they see it, are occupying part of Palestine. The Hamas view is there should not be a Jewish state at all. Forget about that United Nations plan of 1947 or whatever the British had in mind in 48. They don't think there should be a Jewish state of Israel at all. So kill anybody you can possibly get to. Make life impossible in Israel. Make life unpleasant. Make the Israelis depressed. And for now, Hamas managed to do that. But you're right, John. They also made the Israelis angry and determined. And of course, Hamas knew that... Israel would would hit back hard. Now, yeah. does Hamas care when many, many, many Gaza civilians are killed, or does it fuel their revolutionary fervor? I would say mm -hmm. the latter. They don't care much. Deaths among the Gaza population are good for the Hamas message in hoping that Israel will be blamed, Israel will be unpopular, and they dream that one day Israel won't exist. I'm sure they even would hope that Iran would get nuclear bombs yeah. and use one. Yeah. Last question here for you then, Dan. So the possibility of a two-state solution has always been out there. You referred to it just, just a second ago. It has really, I don't think, ever seemed further away than it does right at this minute. It seems inconceivable that a two-state solution could happen at this point, but that is obviously still the goal of most people who have been watching the, the Middle East and trying to find a way to end this conflict that's been going on for generations. How, if I guess if you had the answer to this question, it would be a lot easier to, to solve it, but in, how can there be a two-state solution? What 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 has to happen in in order for that to to be an eventuality someday? Step one: remove Hamas. Because don't get confused, dear listeners. You may think, oh my, what the Israelis are doing, plowing into Gaza, that makes a solution less possible. Deaths are terrible. I hope Israel keeps expressing regret when civilians are hit. But eliminating Hamas, if Israel can manage to do that topple that regime, remove Hamas, and then Israel hands the keys to Gaza. Israel got out of Gaza, by the way, in 2005, but hands the keys now to the Palestinian Authority, which is relatively moderate, 
based in Ramallah in the West Bank. It's Yasser Arafat's old Al-Fatah group. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are definitely more moderate. They have signed agreements with Israel. They would live alongside Israel. And then the prospect that Saudi Arabia, the European Union, and others might pour in money, and you build a port, you get the airport going, the fishing industry gets good. I mean, Gaza is good land. And if the Palestinian Authority would play ball, and they might welcome the opportunity because Hamas chased them away in 2007 in a bloody civil war between Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority may be happy to come back. Israel may be able to hand the keys back to the PA. I'm not saying there'd be an instant solution, but that's a step not away from a two-state solution, Palestine alongside Israel. That actually could be a step forward. Well, like I said, no one better to talk about these issues and this area of the world than Dan Raviv. Uh, want to encourage you to get his book, Spies Against Armageddon. Um, again, a history of Israeli intelligence and security agencies. This this is uh, an area that we are obviously going to be focusing on, focusing on a whole lot, and Dan has written a lot about it. So uh, you can check out any one of his different books on, on Amazon, wherever it is that uh, you can find things to read. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the DC Debrief and helping to unpack all this for us. We really appreciate it. John, it's a dark time, but good to talk to you. All right, looking ahead to next week, of course, the speakership battle will continue to roll on. The Senate will be back in session, and so uh, we'll see what senators are doing to try and help avoid a government shutdown uh, within the next month. But, of course, not much they can do until the House speakership thing is settled. And, of course, that will be the big news on Capitol Hill at the beginning of the week. On Wednesday, the Senate Help Committee will consider the national t the Monica Bertinoli to be director of the National Institutes of Health. Also, uh, Senate Finance will hold a hearing on Medicare enrollment, and Senate Judiciary will hold a hearing on immigration courts. So there'll be some hearings that we're keeping an eye on. Uh, the NOAA will issue their U.S. winter outlook, something we always want to keep an eye on in terms of what we can expect in terms of cold and, and wetness and stuff in the wintertime. And President Biden will host European Commission and Council presidents in Washington. Uh, chiefly among the things that they'll be discussing uh, will be Ukraine, but also a number of other items uh, critical to the United States and Europe's partnerships. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. And again, just a reminder, please tell a friend or family member about the podcast. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.